Good morning. Those don't know me, I'm JC. Um, thank you for the privilege of speaking to you. Um, Dale, Mike, Bill, um, Drew, Chris, thank you all for giving me the opportunity to speak. Uh, it's been a while since I've preached, and so I may be a little bit rusty, so y'all bear with me. I'm going to try to continue where Bill left off in 1 Corinthians. He left off the theme that he's going through through 1 Corinthians as being the church, and he asked if he could continue with that, and I told him I'd be happy to, and the title for this one is uh, Being the Church Family. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. And then we're going to look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, although we're going to more concentrate on 1 through 8 out of chapter 5. If anybody read ahead, this is going to be one of those uh, sermons that everybody needs to be reminded of, that this Paul did not write this letter to non-believers. And so if you're visiting here this morning and you're not, you're not a member of this church or you don't claim Christ as your Savior, listen in and you can hear what's said. Oh, sorry, Chris. Blast. And I will throw an asterisk on this. The, some of the things that we're going to talk about today is going to be adult-type stuff. So uh, just saying, as we dismiss for blast. <laughs> no, the adults can't run back there either, though. <laughs> Although you may want to before the day's out. So before we get into reading the Word, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for this day. We do ask blessings on Bill and the family as they're enjoying some much-needed vacation. May they grow closer to one another. May his spirit be renewed while he's gone and bring him back uh, refreshed, ready to continue his love and service to the church. We thank you for all of us here today. We know that us being here means you're here. Help us to learn something new out of your scriptures this morning. Amen. Okay, so... We have a family of eight, almost said six, but we have a family of eight. Have y'all ever had a come to Jesus meeting in your family before? <laughs> has, ever, has, has things ever pushed you to the point like everybody get in the living room? We're talking right now. Um, I don't know, maybe it's just our family, but we've had those a few times. That phrase come to Jesus meeting is sometimes used at work. Even though, you know, sometimes politically incorrect to say Jesus at work, if you use the phrase come to Jesus, that seems to be acceptable because people know what that means generally. That means it's it's time to come face to face with some problems. And that's what Paul's going to be talking about today to the first Corinthians. He's having a, he's already started talking about the divisions among them in the previous chapters, but he's going to get into some pretty, pretty tough stuff here today. And, and he will also continue that through the, through the book. So let's, uh, we're going to, let me get this clicker here. These are the four things we're going to kind of look at today. We're going to look at parental love, arrogance and pride and sinning, a little leaven, and foreshadowing in the rest of the church family. So let's open up the word and let's read 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 21. It says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you, for though you have... 10,000 instructors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everyone, excuse me, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some of you are puffed up as though I were not coming, but I will come to you shortly. If the Lord wills, I will know Not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. 
What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a, and a spirit of gentleness? Now, my, 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 uh, my work requires me to be gone a lot. And so sometimes there, there's a phone call. I'm going to talk to you when I get home. <laughs> and they know I'm coming back. But Paul has been gone for quite a while from Corinth. And so they have become not just arrogant in the, in the way in which the church is being handled, the sin that they have, their, their, their puffed up arrogance, if you will. But they've also started arguing who's, who they're going to listen to. And we're not going to listen to Paul because he's never coming back. And Paul is trying to remind them, I'm coming back. And by the way, Paul says, you got a lot of people that you're listening to, but I'm the only one with of a parental type authority over you because I came to this church and through the work of the Holy Spirit, it is me who led you to salvation. And so he's trying to let them understand, I really do love you. I'm not saying these things just to beat you up. I really do love you. He's referred to himself as a steward, a servant, and now he's referring to himself as a parent. And one thing that he says, and if you've had these come to Jesus things I pray that, you know, we're not tempted to make our kids feel ashamed. Have you ever said, and I'm guilty of this, you should be ashamed of yourself to one of your children. Paul is not trying to get them to understand what they need to change by trying to make them feel ashamed. He is trying to admonish them. He is trying to show them the proper direction. And then he's trying to let, he's going to let the Holy Spirit work in the heart of those people to, to do what the Holy Spirit needs to do to the person to convict that person. So he's not trying to make him feel ashamed. A story in the Bible, if you remember in, in 1 Samuel, where Nathan confronts David. Nathan does nothing but tell the story, and then he confronts David and points his finger at David and says, you are the person. Nathan is not trying to make David feel guilty. David recognizes his own guilt, falls on his knee before God, and understands that he has sinned against God himself. And David was restored after being admonished from Nathan. So this admonishing thing. Let's read. Let's look. Somebody look over in 1 Corinthians 11 and read me verse 1. It's a real, it's a short verse, I promise. There's not a lot of big words in it. Follow my example. I follow these. Do we live a life that we can tell people you work with, your kids, your neighbors? You know what? If you don't know what to do, just do like I do. That's a pretty strong statement as to what Paul's saying. He's like, Paul recognizes he's not, he's not perfect. He says that he's chief among sinners, but he understands that his life is one that's devoted. He does keep his focus on Christ, and Paul says, just do like me. I wish I could say that to my kids every single day, but when you live in a family, you see things about the family that other people don't see. And so it's even harder sometimes within a family, and so Paul's talking to a church family. And so us together as a church family, we start to learn each other. We start to learn how to minister to each other. And we also see people's weaknesses. The other people see the weaknesses in you. And this lifting each other up and being able to say, do like me, is still something that we should strive for. But once we get past that, I want to talk about the rod and I want to talk about hugs. This is a question that we can ask each other. Hopefully you don't take big sticks and beat your kids. That's not what Paul's trying to say here. There is, there is some corporal punishment. That's another discussion for another day. What Paul is saying is, are you going to start getting yourself right with some words and some love? Or am I going to have to come back and be a little more stern um, by actually bringing the Holy Spirit with me? Just for instance, and, and I'm going to keep coming back to the family example because that's what we're talking about. If you confront one of your children 
Or if you were, as when you were younger and you were confronted by your parents, or either case, and they, they pointed out something that you had done wrong, and you immediately recognized, I was wrong, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Most of the time that will break the heart of a parent, and there will be nothing but love and compassion. There may still be a punishment. There may be some consequences to the action, but that will usually just break down the person. And Paul is, is basically saying the same thing. Am I going to come with a rod, or am I going to come with admonition and love? Ask yourself this question, and, and only you can answer this, or maybe, you're, maybe the people who know you best can answer this. How well do we receive correction? When you're at work, and, and your boss comes up and says, that was not a good job, this is the reasons why that was not a good job. Do you recoil? Do you get defensive? If someone who's a Christian brother or sister comes up and says, you know, I've been seeing you do these kinds of things. It's not really what the Bible says. Are you, do you get defensive? Are you willing to be corrected? Um, Paul, hopefully, as Christians, as we grow and mature, we're, we're willing to be corrected. And so this, that's the introduction there. Um, we are not perfect people, but we are people pursuing perfection. Um, later, later in this book, Paul's going to break into a chapter 13. If you've been to very many weddings, uh, Christian weddings, a lot of times the book, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 was read. It was read at our wedding 30-something years ago, a long time ago. Um, but uh, people still read that, and that's kind of like the center, center point of the book. He even uses that uh, example, the banging of, the, banging of a cymbal. You can love somebody, you can work for somebody, you can say, I'm a, I'm a, I've got the gift of this, I, I'm gifted in this, I'm doing this for the church. But if you do all that stuff and you haven't loved a single individual, it's worthless. It's like you're just banging on a cymbal and a gong. So um, this, this lead-in is very important. I can't overemphasize the lead-in at the end of chapter 4 to what's being fixing to be talked about in chapter 5. Because if you miss the love and the compassion that Paul has for this church, the next part of the, the chapter and the ones that follow thereafter are ones that can be skewed and a church can pervert this teaching to where they become authoritative and, and think they can rule over everybody's lives. So I, I, that's why I want to really emphasize chapter 4. Paul loves these people. But there's a problem. There is a significant problem in chapter 5. And I won't ask anybody else to read this. I'll read this. Um, is that better? Good, 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 good. Y'all probably like, we didn't want to really hear that verse anyway. <laughs> I won't start from the beginning. I'll pick up in verse 4. It says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your glorying is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, in Leviticus, and I'm not going to go through that thou shalt not do this type, and this is sexual immorality. If you want to know the full list, ranging from people to animals, I mean, the whole list is in Leviticus chapter 18. Write that down. I am not going to read that whole list this morning. I encourage you to read it, because if anybody, you know, if, unless you are maybe blind and deaf, 
If you live in this country and drive, if you work on a computer, if you look in magazines, if you watch television, I don't have to tell you how much this is the case here. Corinth was, a, Corinth was first destroyed by the Romans, then it was rebuilt, but it kind of got the Greco and it got the Roman influence. It was a, there was a little piece of land between the two seas, and people would come there and they would either drag their boats across a little bit or they would change their, 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 um, their cargo from one ship to the other ship. It was a central spot. I mean, it was, it was like a hot spot in the Mediterranean world. Everything went on there. Some people would say, have you been Corinthianized? Or we would use that word Corinthianized, and that just means, have you participated in sexual immorality? I mean, that was the, this was the city. I mean, it's like, like a Las Vegas, if you will. But unfortunately, Las Vegas and, and things that go on there aren't, don't stay there. They're across our whole country. And it's, you know, it's not, a, it's not a stretch to say that a lot of people that we live with, a lot of people that we worship with even, have trouble with certain aspects of this. So I'm going to treat this gently, but I also don't want to treat it too gently in the fact that Paul calls this thing out. And this is a serious problem. So I would invite you on your own time to go read Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 8. In this particular case, and this is the, this is the first uh, real strong admonishment in the book of Corinthians that he's given, it's not clear if this is his stepmom or if this is his real mom. Not really clear, um, but in either case, it was considered incest. And not, this was not just going on. So if you missed the part earlier, it said the Gentiles even, the people that don't come into this church, that, y'all don't, that don't claim Christ, they even recognize that this is this just ain't right. Yet this church, Paul is saying, you're still boasting that this is the greatest church. we got this great influence in this community, and you're going on like nothing's a problem. Yet the outside world could see that there was a problem in the church. And so as Paul's telling them, you have to do this. Um, um, and so the, one of the questions that uh, came out of this as I was studying this is why don't we mourn over sin? Why wasn't that church, and oh, you always want to bring it back to yourself, why don't we mourn about sin? I grew up in the South. My dad was a Southern Baptist preacher for 30-something years. And so I've been in church a long time and seen a lot of things. And there's a, there's a I don't know, I can't remember the name of the song, but there's a country music song that was popular a few years back that said one of the phrases were Friday night football, Saturday night last call, then Sunday hallelujah. And so there's this theology that the, Baptists used to, the Southern Baptists in the South used to get accused of, sometimes legitimately so, of... We would always profess, once saved, always saved, completely believe that. Once you accept Christ and you genuinely bend the knee to Christ and you're saved, that is a forever deal. There's nothing you can do to back out of it. That's a forever deal. However, there's this uh, freedom in Christ theology that some people adopt after that, where I know I'm going to get forgiveness, so I'm just going to go ahead and do that this time just so grace can take care of me later. That is a dangerous philosophy, and that is... Uh, one that we need to guard ourselves against. Romans did a few, uh, uh, Paul addresses this several times because he understands that this is a, something that, that, that needs to be addressed. It's in Romans 3.8 says, And why, why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with, charge us with saying their condemn, condemnation is just. Paul is, this is a letter to the Ro- Romans saying, People are saying this about you, and it's true. Um, Romans 6, 1 through 2 says, Why, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in, in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can, 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? And Galatians 5.13, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. This is, this is a theology we have to watch out for. Um, I, I don't know exactly which, and we're going to talk about this foreshadowing in a little bit. I don't know exactly which of the sins that Paul's going to address through the, through the book of, which one is it that permeated the uh, church first, but this, this, this sexual immorality, immorality got to the forefront. Please let us all, and I'm, I'm talking to myself, and I was heavily convicted about this this week at work. Don't fall into the, into the thinking, oh, it's a, I'm going to go ahead and do this. I'm out with the buddies. We're going we're gonna to live it up a little bit. It's okay. God will forgive me for it. If that even enters your mind, please, please, please get, you know, get a Christian brother and say, you know what, or sister, and say, help me with this. That, that's a road that will take you down to where, where, where sin will continue to make its grip on you, and then you got a bigger problem. So anyway, that was, that was what was going on. There was sin in the church. The sin was grotesque. The sin was so grotesque that others outside the church recognized it. And the people inside were arrogant about it and thought it was no big deal. And Paul's addressing that. Leads to the second question. Who am I to judge? And I want you, you're sitting up front. You've got the beautiful cardinal shirt on. If Mike was doing something he wasn't supposed to and he was like boasting about it in Highland and I come to confront him about it, what gives me the right to do that? After all, I'm still a sinner. There's plenty of things that Mike, if he knows me, he could probably throw back in my face. What? That, that, is, that is a lot of times what keeps us. And this church is an absolutely loving church. And sometimes the loving churches have the hardest time to go correct an individual because they see sin in their own life. That cannot keep us, though. John Piper, I don't know how many of y'all know him. He says this in a way that I think is worth repeating. Humility does not tell God how to be gracious. It listens and tries to obey with fear and trembling. When we decide because we look at ourselves and go, okay, I'm not perfect, so I can't tell anybody else anything, what we're telling God is, God, I'm smarter than you in this case. You want to help restore that individual through me, but since I'm a sinner, I know better. I'm going to mess this up worse. I'm not going to go tell that guy anything. I think those come from a genuine sense of love for individuals, but it can't keep us from doing what we need to do as Christians. We actually are telling God we're smarter than he is when we do that. And we still have to go out and do this. When we confront individuals and we tell them what, what's going on in their lives, we have to check our motives. I've, uh, I spent a lot of time at the end of chapter 4. The hope and the desire and the prayer when you confront an individual or hopefully this never happens at our church, you, a church actually has to ask somebody to leave the fellowship. It is with the hope of restoration for that individual. It says that uh, deliver one to Satan for the destruction of, his, of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day. There's sometimes people have to hit rock bottom. Some people have to experience the consequences of their sin before they actually come to the senses. We're not going to read the story of the prodigal son, but the prodigal son wanted it all. His dad gave it all. He left, and he was sitting there in the pig pen wishing he could eat the food from the pigs, and he came to his senses. It does not happen, though, every time. Sometimes people, even after they've been confronted, and sometimes even after they've been asked to leave a fellowship, they continue on up until their very death. But that is still, God says that is still better than for them to stay in the fellowship and not be corrected. Because if their soul is one, if they have confessed Christ, they will be saved in the day. 
But we have to follow God's will with this. And, and like, Piper said, like John Piper said, humility does not tell God how to be gracious. Okay, so let's take a break. Let's, let's lighten this up a little bit here. I'm going to set this over here. So I try to, I try to imitate Bill best I can. I got an object lesson over here. I don't know where the vacuum cleaner is. Somebody's going to have to show me. All right. You'll show me? Okay. So, it mentions unleavened bread. And I have, there's, there's, there's certain passages in the Bible that I'll have to admit that I avoid. I don't like to read. This chapter 5 in Corinthians is not on the top of my list for something daily, daily reading. So, I studied this chapter probably more this week than I ever have in my life. And this thing about unleavened bread was new to me. Um, I thought... When, when the Bible mentioned unleavened bread, so if you look in some of your new translations, in fact, some of your translations may have the word yeast thrown in there. Has anybody got the word yeast in their translation? Okay, some. Okay, that's not talking about yeast. So I don't cook bread at the house. I don't cook bread at the house. Sometimes I will make biscuits, but I don't throw bad, uh, yeast in there. I throw a little baking soda and salt. The children of Israel, when they made their bread... And yes, I have dough here. They made their bread, and there was no yeast in this. This is unleavened pre-cooked bread. And what they would do is after they would make their first batch of dough, I learned this this week, they would take a little bit of their bread, and they would put it in the water, cut a little, some water somewhere. And they let it stay there for a while, and they let it ferment. I love sourdough bread. Now I know how they made it. <laughs> and so... In order to get the bread to rise and to give it the fluffiness, they would also they would have little pieces of this, and so they would go to something that had already fermented, and they would go in there, and of course this is only sitting here this morning, it's probably going to make this thing, whole thing mushy. They would add that little piece, y'all know where I'm going with this. They would add that little piece of leaven which had fermented, and now, kind of, and, and they would work that whole, they would work that little piece in with that dough, and it would permeate that whole dough so that it would affect. And so that's all I'm going to do. I'm not going to try to get any more on the... I haven't spilt it yet. When, they, when, the, when children of Israel... And let's uh, try to give you the scripture verses. Uh, um, I'll read this for you. It's Exodus chapter 13. It says, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day, speaking about the feast of the unleavened bread. Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out, of, out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib, I'm not sure um, what month that is, you are going out, and the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and he swore to your, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey. You shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen for you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You should tell this, you should tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes that the Lord that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute and point it year to year. So, when they left Egypt, God did not want them to take anything out of Egypt that was Egypt. 
And one of the things that he said was, don't take any of those little pieces of unleavened bread with you. Or excuse me, don't take those little pieces of bread that are fermenting to make your loaf. Leave that stuff. Check everywhere. Make, please make sure you don't take any. That was a command. And so when, because, and so the, you know, y'all know the story that they, they put the blood over the, uh, the, the doorpost, the Passover, the death angel came, it smote the firstborn. Egypt's like, you got to get out. The Lord delivered them from them. And then Paul says, just like that, Christ did that for you. And he says that in, in, in chapter five. And so just like Israel was delivered from Egypt by God, we, when we profess Christ, have been delivered by Christ by the blood that he shed on the cross. What is old is gone. We are new creatures in Christ. We, unfortunately, keep little pieces of what we left behind in, in, in and about us. And this is what I learned and was really convicted about this week. What little things that you, that you know that's just been sin and you've confronted, but you leave it just a little bit of it in your life. And things are going along fine, and, things will get a little, and then things get a little difficult. And, and you reach back there, and you go grab one of those. I'm going to work this into my life a little bit because life's too hard right now. I can't do this. I've got to have the old way of what I use. Paul is warning. He can't warn this strong enough about this unleavened bread. And now that I understand really what it means is we have enough sin just inside of us. We have enough yeast inside of us to just pollute ourselves. We certainly don't need to add to the problem to go back to what God saved us from and put it back into our life because it will permeate our life and have an effect. And since we're talking about the church, if an, if an individual is having problems and the church doesn't help that individual address that problem, that can also permeate the church. And we're going to see in a minute here that when it permeates the church, it starts to affect the church in lots of different ways. And so we need to treat sin like Paul tells us to treat sin. Get rid of it. Don't keep a little piece back for when things get tough or, or, or whatever the reason might be. It, it has a drastic effect on the church. Um, okay. How much time do we have? All right, so a little bit longer here. And I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on chapter 5 um, because uh, I, I think Bill's going to pick up here on, on chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 9. But we are going to read it because I, I, do, I do want to talk a little bit about this before we uh, close. It says, I wrote to you in my epistle. Paul's reached out to them before. Uh, we, don't have, we don't know exactly what the letter said, but he's reached out to them before. Um, not to keep company with sexual immoral people. You cert yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or the covetousness or the extorters, the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go outside of the world, meaning get on the Elon Musk plane and leave the planet. That's what Paul's saying here. You'd have to physically leave the world if you were to get away from um, everybody. For what I, excuse me, pick up verse 12. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you... Not judge those who are on the inside, but those who are outside God judges. Therefore, put away yourselves from the evil person. So I mentioned, and, and, and I'm going to um, tell two stories here. I mentioned earlier, group in South Southern Baptist Church, talked to, talked to all you about the once saved, always saved, the accusations to get the church about the freedom to sin. We saw a lot of it. But also, what was, what was a lot of notice, and, and I'll just be... Quite honest with you, in the 70s and the 80s, divorce became like the cardinal sin. And 
that so much that you could you could actually have you could be a you could be a non-Christian and be in jail for some kind of crime and the church would welcome you back if you confess Christ. But if you were a non-Christian living in the world and you confess Christ, but you brought back you brought the baggage of some divorce that may have happened, the church would still ostracize you. In the South. I don't know what was going on up here in lovely Highland. I'm just talking about what was going on in, in Tennessee. Um, the church would pick and choose which, which of the sins it would judge of the outside world. We aren't to do that. This door should be open for anybody to come into this church. Anybody. I don't care what they're living like, what they profess, what they do. If they're, if they're sinners out in the world, this is where we want them to be. We want them sitting next to us. We want to go to their house and eat. We want them to come on our house and eat. Paul is not saying that. If Jesus said in Matthew chapter 2, the sick still need a physician, Christ came for those people. Christ ate with those people. That's what we're supposed to do. What Paul is saying here, and I want to be clear about this, is if somebody professes Christ, or as John Piper also said, as a so-called Christian, and they're living in sin arrogantly, those are the people you don't need to be hanging around with. So that's, that's, that's the clear here. But I also want to bring it one, one thing here um, that he also gets into. When he gets into the, uh, the, the foreshadowing of the rest of the, of the, of the, uh, of the chapter. So when, when we've had these come to Jesus meetings at our house, it's usually one kid has pushed us over the edge, and that's what gets us all in there. But mom and dad know that there's a lot more going on that this kid that, that did this is probably, it's just a, he just wanted to just tip us over the iceberg, if you will. And so you'll have this meeting, and your focus will be on this child who's messed up. And you can kind of look out of the corner of your eye, and you can see the other kids getting a little bit puffed up like so-and-so's getting what they deserve. And the mom and dad usually are wise to this, and when they see that happening, they go, and, <laughs> and. And they turn, and then the kid is like, oh. Now it's my turn to get. Paul is throwing out some sins here. I don't know if he caught them. It's, uh, it says, uh, with any, it's in verse 11, but now I have written to you to not keep company with one named a brother. Okay, so now he's talking about who you shouldn't keep company with if they call them as Christ, who is sexually immoral, which is what this chapter is talking about, covetousness, an idolater, a rivaler, a drunkard, an extortioner, He's going to talk about those in the rest of his letter. So he's basically giving warning, you should be taking care of this person, but there's some things that y'all need to take care of as well. Um, Paul is letting them know that uh, he's going to come talk to them next. So well, as a family of believers, um, there are times, uh, we, we have to stick to the scripture here, and I want to make sure this is clear. There are times as a fellowship of believers that there are, that sometimes that, it's called for to ask somebody to leave the fellowship. If they're claiming Christ and they're not doing what they're supposed to and they're doing it arrogantly with don't want to change what they're doing, Paul's pretty clear on that. I, I know this body of believers is going to love and that's going to be like one of the last things they ever want to do, but it is taught in Scripture. Um, but what's also taught in Scripture is what Paul did in verse four, uh, chapter 4, and this should, all of us should be striving for this, and this is what I'm going to close on. Live a life that you can go tell a fellow believer, do like I do. If we do that, then in those times of correction, things correction is going to be much easier, I believe. But uh, anyway, let's pray about this, because that's where we need to spend a lot of time when we start talking about this kind of stuff. Lord, we love you. We thank you for giving us instruction in the Bible, even instruction in the Bible that we sometimes 
as I've done, have overlooked to study. Um, but it's there, Lord, and we understand that it's important um, when we claim Christ that we don't confuse people, we don't confuse the world. And we ask that uh, you soften the hearts of every individual in here and everybody who claims to be Christ, that it's ready to receive correction when correction is needed. Lord, we love you. We want to be a church that loves other people. Help us to do that. In your name we pray. Amen.